This is What's with Washington, where you ask the questions about our region, about the place we live, about your neighborhood, Anacostia, Prince George's County, Pentagon City, Woodley Park, Columbia Heights, and WAMU Answers. I'm a second generation Washingtonian. Ward 5. This is What's with Washington. I'm Michaela LaFrac. And today we're talking about food, and not just any old food. We're looking into the iconic dishes of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And it's all because of this question that we got from Peter Ruth. The ham that seems to be iconic for the the food for Virginia, and in Maryland they seem to be really fond of crabs. But I don't know what kind of food is the icon and the official food of Washington, D.C. Peter's from the area. He lives in Arlington and he works in D.C. If I asked somebody I knew who grew up in D.C., it's like, what's the food of the city? You know, and it's like a lot of people don't know. It's like one person, I think, may have said, like, maybe it's the, 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 bean, the, the Senate bean soup that's served in the Senate cafeteria. Is that the food of the city? And another person may have said, like, maybe it's the, uh, uh, the half smoke from, uh, you know, from Ben's Chili Bowl or something like that. That's as close as I could get to an answer, but nothing is definitive. Don't worry. We're not going to spend this whole episode talking about the bean soup on Capitol Hill. D.C. actually has so many iconic foods that WAMU literally has a whole podcast about them, Dish City. So we're going to give you a little sampler platter of D.C. foods, and then we're going to go deep on two iconic foods from outside the district. Maryland blue crabs and Virginia ham. And who better to help me out with this than Ruth Tam and Patrick Fort? They're the hosts of Dish City. Hey guys. Hey Michaela. Hey. So what does make a food iconic? Basically it has to be recognized by people who already live there or it has to be sought out by tourists. Um, I'm from the Chicago area so I grew up with knowing about deep dish pizza and having that be part of like the cultural local lore but it's not too far off to say that not everybody is super into deep dish. It's just a thing that you bring out-of-town friends and family to go try because that's what they expect. Our question asker, Peter, says he's already heard a lot about D.C.'s most well-known food, the Half Smoke. And in the first episode of Dish City, you guys go deep on the history of Ben's Chili Bowl. So outside of the Half Smoke, what other foods did you guys choose as iconic for the city? Um, we also dug into mumbo sauce. The Half Smoke checks the box and that, like, tourists know about it. But mumbo sauce checks that other box of, like, natives growing up with it, black Washingtonian natives specifically, um, feel like they have um, a strong pride around mumbo sauce. You can often find it in Chinese carryouts, um, and it's the kind of thing that if you didn't grow up with carryouts like I did, or if you're new to DC's carryout culture, you might not um, recognize it, but it is a, a condiment that it appears you can only find here. Another thing that I think is so interesting about mumbo sauce and the district's relationship to it is how strongly people claim it. We talked to this guy named Abrima Job who puts on these events uh, called Chicken and Mumbo Sauce. He's had them at the Howard Theater and the 930 Club. And there's, they're just like these big parties like with with a DJ set and like a go-go band. And Is there food? Yes. Tons and tons of chicken and mumbo that's sauce. That's awesome. What food can you only get in the DMV? Like what's something that's special to DMV that you're going to get there? And it was just like no-brainer. I was just like, yo, chicken and mumbo sauce. Like. This is what <laughs> we grew up with our whole life, you know? Like, I, I don't know the first time I ever had chicken mumbo sauce. It's just something that <laughs> I just ate. My parents would buy it every Friday, and it's just, like, a part of your life. I feel like that's a key part of, of an iconic food is something that you grew up with or have, like, a childhood memory of. And it sounds like he has a lot of those with mumbo sauce. Yeah, I think if, like, a bunch of people have those childhood memories, that's where you can start. When they're, like, shared memories. Yeah. 
And I think that is one reason why people were so mad like a year ago when Mayor Muriel Bowser said that she hadn't heard of mumbo sauce. And I remember this. It was drama. It was tons so of drama. drama. <laughs> it was like right before Thanksgiving. She said on Facebook that she was annoyed by mumbo sauce. Is anybody else annoyed by mumbo sauce? Well, that's the question DC Mayor Muriel Bowser asked on Facebook last night. And oh, people were really upset because she is from the district. She grew up here. How could she not have heard of it until she was an adult? And I think it just says a lot about how strongly people associate mumbo sauce with the district and growing up here and being from here. I have to say, though, I I mean, I was like very baffled when I saw that post that she was wading into this like very heated food debate or starting it off. But also, like, I appreciate a hot take from the mayor about her personal taste. Like, we don't get that many looks in. And if if she doesn't like mumbo sauce, I don't know. Yeah. Power to her. Yeah. I don't think people were were upset necessarily that, uh, you know, a person doesn't like mumbo sauce. I think people were reacting really strongly because it felt like she was denying uh, or she didn't want to acknowledge a part of the city that she represented. Right. And uh, Arsha Jones, the co-founder of Capital City Mumbo Sauce, uh, felt that way, too. Like the mayor of Philadelphia, he might not even eat beef. And so, you know, Philly steak and cheese, he may never eat one. But he won't go on air publicly on social media and say, I hate, you know, our Philly cheese steaks annoying. You know, they won't do that. Well, I think that's because Philly diehards are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's true. And maybe maybe there's this idea that D.C. is not all natives and I don't have to like yeah. cater to people's shared memories of a thing. All right. But this is only two foods and you guys had seven episodes. So how did you choose the rest? So D.C., um, people talk about it as a city of transplants. That also includes immigrants. And uh, D.C. is a really international town. And... Uh, D.C. is home to one of the largest groups of Ethiopians outside of Ethiopia, as well as another um, group of uh, immigrants, Salvadoran Americans, in the Washington region. So uh, we covered both pupusas and Ethiopian food. Um, and uh, we talked to Sade Makonin, a local artist who has really deep, um, strong memories of what it meant to grow up here as an Ethiopian. This street, when they when it used to be like Muscatum and Fasika, there would be like a day you would come where it was clearly that they, all the Ethiopian restaurants were cooking because it would just smell like onions all down 18th Street. Like I remember that growing up. When my sister last visited, she was like, wait, so why do you keep on pressing Ethiopian food every time we visit? And I didn't realize that I had been doing that at all. And I just thought it was hilarious because I do the same thing. I think I do the same thing too. Right? Every guest I've had in like the last two years. I mean, it's just delicious and everyone needs to know it. Of course. It's not like you can't find Ethiopian food elsewhere in the U.S. It's just that there's so many options here. Putting you guys on the spot, um, we've talked a lot about like the foods of the city, but if you guys had to pick one iconic food that symbolized each of you, what would it be? This is more a dinner party question than a podcast question, but I just really want to know. If we were a food? No, not if you, not your body is not becoming the food, but if you were to pick a food, like if you were, you know, doing a presentation to a thousand people who've never met you and you were like, all you could do is present one food and be like, this is me. Um, Someone asked me if I were a snack, what snack I would be. And I was like, you know, I think I'd be like a Chinese tea egg because I've got like this crusty exterior <laughs> and, and uh, like a, I don't know savory insights wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <Not> layers 
<laughs> is it bad that I was about to go down that same metaphor of food with French fries? French fries. Crusty exterior, soft, soft interior. interior. <laughs> I was looking for something that would like bring up like an old memory for you guys, but you're going very literal. I mean, I've got memories with tea eggs, but yeah, I have like <laughs> you know a hard shell exterior. French fries. And the French fries. Need yeah. I say more? Ruth and Patrick, your podcast first season focuses on D.C.-specific foods, but obviously there's this whole beautiful wide world of food outside the district. So next, I think we should get out of the studio and go get some Maryland crabs. Yes. Let's do it. The place that I always take people is called Cantler's, and it's right on the water near Annapolis, and it is pretty delicious. What does this say? There's a sign, like a plaque on the wall. Yeah. It says it's a People Magazine article called the most popular restaurant in every state and Washington, D.C. Thank you, People Magazine, for reflecting our lack of statehood. And it looks like Maryland is Cantler's Riverside Inn. Marylanders say the sweet Old Bay crusted Chesapeake blue crabs are the best around, and Cantler's is the most authentic place to enjoy them as you sit on the deck overlooking Mill Creek. Cantler's.com. Why are crabs so significant to Maryland? So Maryland crabbers sell more than 30 million pounds of crab in a typical year. That's $55 million worth of crab. And to give you a sense of comparison, the state of Vermont sells around the same amount in maple syrup in terms of dollars. (laughs) Uh, Experts estimate that the Chesapeake Bay actually supplies a third of the nation's blue crabs in a year. And this is also actually pretty comparable to the amount of syrup that comes from Vermont in a year. Wow, that's wild. Wait, our crabs are here. Wow, so quick, crabs. Hey, we did it. Thank you. Butter, butter, please. Butter. The thing about Maryland crabs is that these are people come from all over the country to get Maryland blue crabs because they say that they're sweeter here. Um, and other people, even if they're blue crabs elsewhere or crabs elsewhere, they'll make them differently. So, like in New Orleans. Um, you know, crawfish and other shellfish is like boils, and here it's steamed, which people say kind of retains the flavor of the meat better. Huh. Doesn't dry it out as much. Yeah. Maybe. It could be something about the water that's always like, I think, in constant conversation. Right. Thank you. I think that's something that's like constantly being talked about, like whether the health of the bay, like the reason why the health of the bay is such a big issue here is because it it affects the crab industry. People in Maryland have been eating crabs for as long as there have been people in Maryland. Uh, So it's kind of been forever, really. Uh, But as far as a kind of a big commercial crabbing presence, that seems to have started kind of around the late 1800s, early 1900s. There doesn't seem to be kind of one definitive uh, starting date. At that point, we started to see regulations being made on like what types of crabs you can catch and like when you can catch them and what species that that are legal and and things like that. Um, And that's just kind of evolved into what we have today. Once to get crabs, where would you guys send them? It's a wharf. To go? The fish wharf. Yeah. What do you find there? Uh, you can go and uh, buy crabs. It does like a bag of crabs, and you can get steamed there, seasoned there, yeah. go home and lay out and put your paper out and 
destroy these crabs in the privacy of your own home. After the break, we're ditching the surf and we're going turf and talking about Virginia ham. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Benny Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Hey, it's Ruth. And Patrick. We're the hosts of Dish City. And we want to let you know that WAMU produces all sorts of shows that are made possible by listeners like you. All of the shows. If you like where we're headed with these new podcasts, Dish City, What's With Washington, Unprecedented. Or if you like the old stuff, the radio, the old-fashioned radio machine. Become a member and support WAMU today. Just click the link in the show notes. And thanks. Thanks. All right, so we have got one last food to talk about today, and I'm really excited about it because it's from my home state, the Virginia ham. And what did you find out? Um, I went to Mount Vernon, so of course the historical home of our very first president, George Washington, and his wife, Martha, and I found out that they ate a ton of ham. And they raised all of these pigs, um, and they produced around like 17,000 pounds of ham every single year. Um, they would have a big slaughter in December um, and then they would smoke it in a smokehouse. That's just like an absurd amount of ham and I like can't imagine that like oh it's the holidays. You know what we should do? Have a pig slaughter. <laughs> right? But uh, yeah a ham a day. That is a, a ton of ham. But I guess Keeps it's the like. the doctor away. It does. <laughs> right so they had so many of these hams. What made them so special and what did they do to prepare them? So it actually starts with the pig itself. They had all these pigs that they just let, you know, run hog wild, pun deeply intended, um, all around the plantation. And they'd be eating all this like yummy detritus, like mushrooms and acorns and all your good stuff. And then those pigs would be butchered and then smoked over hickory smoke. They'd also douse them with salt and something called saltpeter, which preserves the meat and keeps it free of, of some kinds of really bad bacteria. And then they'd put it in barrels. And I love this. They they'd put the, the smoked hams in barrels and then they'd cover it with sawdust to keep it like super, super, super dry. So to eat it, you have to like soak it for a couple of days. You scrape off all the mold. Um, and then they would ship it in barrels to their friends a lot of times. Like these were super popular hams. So they'd send them to like the Marquis de Lafayette in France or they'd ship them up to the White House so they could serve them for like a state dinner. Um, and that was like a very exciting package to get from the Washingtons. A ham. A sawdust-covered barrel ham. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect for the holidays. So, like, are is this still a thing? Are people still crazy about Virginia ham? Particularly in, like, the Norfolk Hampton Roads area, it's very Hampton much... Hampton Roads? I... <laughs> I visited this place called the Old Virginia Ham Shop, and it's this adorable little shop. Hi, how are you? And the owner is a woman named Dana Bright. And so how many hams do you think you sell? Oh, my goodness. It's it's impossible. I mean, it's, I mean, thousands and thousands of hams. It's just so, it's, 
it's major. (laughs) It gets to the point where I, you know, every year I say, I just feel it's like usually mid December. And I feel like I'm like in a pool and only my nose is sticking out. And I'm like, I'm just trying to stay, you know, keep afloat. And they're just flying out in a pool of ham. Wow. Hopefully that was a metaphor. (laughs) Just trying to tread water in this ham. But she said people will wait in line for hours for their hams. And, you know, she does most of her business in the late fall and early winter as people are prepping for the holidays. So it's very seasonal. But, you know, she has people that have been coming there for years and years, and they're, like, obsessed with this ham. So why would you get one of these, like, fancy specialty Virginia hams as opposed to, like, one at the grocery store? True Virginia ham you're not going to find in the in the, in the grocery store. Really? Because sometimes you'll no. see it. In the oh, yeah. Okay, what's the difference? So the difference is, and, you know, I think there's a place for everyone, so I don't think it's really about knocking it, but in terms of authenticity, I, you know, it is, it's not a true Virginia ham. She also compared uh, grocery store ham to going to Target and her ham as going to Nordstrom's. There are a lot of taste differences, so um, I thought I would bring you guys a little little ham sample, a hample, and we can try it for ourselves. Yum. I also brought some sweet potato biscuits that Dana gave me, which is what you usually eat with your Virginia ham. And I also brought some regular grocery store cold cut ham for comparison. Ooh, Mm, taste test. Mm. Before we eat these hams how do you guys generally feel about ham pro so i think we should start with the cold cuts the giant and the boar's head you have to like work your way up into the the high quality virginia ham the nordstrom of the ham. nordstrom of ham start logo high and start at target go to nordstrom <laughs> rack and then finally the nordstrom of ham i think i this just is... don't love lunch meat. i had like a turkey sandwich like a lunch meat turkey sandwich for lunch every day of my childhood. Just like and I, triggering. I just, it's a little triggering. I think lunch meat was like my introduction to ham. I didn't grow up eating like a carved ham. A Christmas you know, ham. Like, so this was like my association with ham and this is what I think of when I think of ham, honestly. Like the ones that are supposed to taste more like <laughs> down the actual like animal. I'm like, what? <laughs> are we ready for the real thing? I'm ready. This ham, like, you it's can like, totally, it looks like actual meat. Like, yeah. the, the the slice is marbled. Mm-hmm. You can see, like, the streaks of fat. It's kind of like when you get, I don't know, like, it's, like, more like prostrom, not, what am I, prosciutto? Prosciutto. Mm-hmm. You're this. Yeah. I'm doing a, a smell <laughs> test. Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's something. It's funky. It's, like, almost got prosciutto-y vibes. Yeah. It's not, well, I mean, there's some sweetness, but it is like you there's no denying that this is like a salty for sure oh wow it's really salty salty mm-hmm. slice really salty it's but delicious I, I love salt yeah it's way better than the store it's <laughs> better, right? <laughs> i'm having yeah it's more. like it tastes like meat in your mouth like the way <laughs> that meat like kind of i don't know how to describe this it has a like but it breaks down in a normal way instead of like <laughs> having to chew through like what essentially is like a really rubbery lunch meat slice. Yeah. Right. There's differentiate like the there's different textures in one bite. Yeah, they just feel like totally different yeah. items. Guys, thank you so much for eating ham with me. Thanks. Oh my gosh. The pleasure is so ours. Thanks for the hamples. This episode was produced by Julia Karen, Ruth Tam, Patrick Fort, Ponzi Rutch, and me, Michaela LaFrac. 
Our theme music is by Ben Privet, who also mixed today's show. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor. Andy McDaniel oversees all our content. What are your questions about the Washington region? Submit your own at our webpage, wamu.org slash what's with. While you're there, you should browse around. We've already answered a ton of questions from our listeners. New episodes of What's With Washington drop every Tuesday. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening right now. Do it. Do it right now. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Michaela LaFrac. See you next time.